Hello, community of hope. Hi, everyone. Hello, everyone. Wave to your fellow COHers. Good to see you. Hey, look at that screen fill up. There we go. Awesome. Good to see everybody. Make sure you wave. I'm on my second page. Make sure you wave. Very good. Great to see everybody. All righty. Well, welcome to session eight. Is it Kathy of Hope University? Session nine. Session nine. Oh my gosh. I cannot believe we're already on session nine. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, it's gone quick, which is a you know, sign of a good thing. So we're glad that everyone's uh, jumping on. It's good to see you guys. We are uh, really, really excited for tonight. We'll tell you about our speaker for tonight in just a little bit. I'm going to keep admitting people in here. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll tell you about that here in just a little bit. Um, as some people are still logging in, we just have a couple quick announcements to go over. Uh, next week, we're going to have our very own Dr. Vic Copan teaching us on how to understand the New Testament. Look at that. Lots of hands applauding already for our very own Dr. Vic. Everyone loves Vic. Uh, so if you are, uh, if you're unfamiliar, maybe you're from the East campus, you don't know Vic as well. Um, Vic was a Vic and Kathy, they were missionaries in Vienna, Austria for 16 years. And he has been attending and serving community of hope for over 15 years. He's a professor of biblical studies and ministry leadership at Palm Beach Atlantic university. And he is the chair of ministry leadership studies department at PBA. So, uh, we are closing out hope university with a bang. Vic, when we did Hope University like 1.03 years ago, we did it in person. You were the last presenter then too as well, weren't you? Um, I'm, not, not, I'm, not exactly, I'm not exactly sure. Well, I, I think you were, and it was one of the best ones I remember. What you taught on Revelation blew my mind and it stuck with me to this day. So I uh, really appreciate it, man. So uh, I'm selfishly really looking forward to next week because it's always a treat to hear you teach on the scriptures for us. So thanks, friend. We're excited for that. Well, um, we want to just uh, always remind everybody just uh, uh, just a couple tech things. Remember to uh, when you are submitting questions because we leave for a half hour for about questions, and man, like the questions have just been riveting the past several weeks in a row. Um, make sure you put your question in the chat. Don't wait for the end. Uh, Vic and Kathy are going to be moderating the chat for tonight. It is so hard to sort, sort through all the questions is about the very end of the lecture is when you submit your questions. So as you think of a question, make sure you submit it in the chat and then we'll go from there. Can everyone just give me a thumbs up that yes, I will give my question. Great. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to keep uh, admitting people in from the waiting room, uh, Kathy, and uh, I'm going to, if I didn't forget anything, I'm going to hand it off to you. Okay, great. Um, so I'm very excited about tonight. Um, I'm guessing I'm not the only one who's ever felt a little confused reading the Old Testament. Um, it's a tricky uh, part of the Bible to understand, and we are really excited to have Dr. Brittany Melton here tonight. Um, Brittany Melton is uh, an assistant professor at Palm Beach Atlantic University of Biblical and Theological Studies. And um, she earned her MA in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary in California. And then she earned her PhD in Old Testament at Cambridge University in England, and then stayed on and taught at Cambridge, taught Old Testament there, uh, before PBA was fortunate enough to snatch her up and get her over here 
And um, she's been teaching both Old Testament classes as well as biblical Hebrew classes and some others at Palm Beach Atlantic. Um, she and her husband, Drew, live in West Palm Beach, and they've got two little kids, Owen and Afton. And uh, since she's my husband's colleague, I've had the joy of getting to know her and being in her home. And uh, I can tell you that Brittany is not only very smart, she also loves Jesus Christ and is somebody who's really in a vibrant relationship with him. So she's committed to help people grow in their relationship with Jesus. And I know you're going to love what she has to share with us tonight. So um, uh, it's exciting to have an expert sharing with us on how to understand the Old Testament. So let's give her a warm community of hope. Well, welcome. Thanks, Kathy. All right. And maybe before we get started, um, uh, let me just pray for you, Brittany, and we'll just uh, commit this evening to the Lord, okay? So let's all pray. Lord, I'm so grateful uh, for all the folks that are on, online tonight to learn about how to understand your word better. And I'm grateful for Dr. Melton and her willingness to share and to teach what you've uh, allowed her to, to learn and gather. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in all of us and in Brittany as she leads us tonight. Um, make this a, a valuable lesson and help us all to grow in our relationship with you and in our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Brittany, we'll turn it over to you. Thanks so much. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen with you. So you should be getting now a nice little PowerPoint to follow along. All right. Um, so welcome. It is such a pleasure to be with you all tonight. Thanks to Kathy and just all of Community of Hope. I've had great engagement um, with people from your church. My grad student worker, Emma, um, was involved at Community of Hope, and she is dear to me. Um, now she's up at Asbury uh, with her husband, Chad. And so, so far, so good with Community of Hope people, even though I haven't been to the campus. Um, but it's my prayer this evening that we would ultimately uh, bring you closer to God through a deeper understanding of his holy word, but especially those parts that maybe seemed really confusing or you just couldn't understand how to apply it to your life today. So that's where we're going to start. And before we keep going, I'll just say a bit more about myself so you don't feel like I'm this random person in West Palm Beach that you've never met. Um, as Kathy said, I teach at PBA. I teach both grad and undergrad classes, mainly Old Testament and Hebrew. Um, we were in Cambridge for six years before we moved to West Palm, and I was at Fuller in L.A. before that. Uh, but I grew up in Oklahoma, and I went to undergrad at Oklahoma Baptist, where I met my husband, Drew. And um, really, my study of the Old Testament started in the youth group and came from a calling to ministry that I really wanted to be a minister. I didn't know what form that would take, um, but really a call. Um, eventually, uh, it became clear to minister to college students. Um, so that's really my heart in my vocation. But um, a particular thing is that I really enjoy when churches can come alive to the value of the Old Testament. Um, so that's what I'm hoping that you get out of tonight. So we're going to tackle both interpreting the Old Testament and kind of what is the Old Testament uh, in one thing. Um, so tonight, um, I want us to think critically about how best to interpret the various genres that we find or different kinds of literature we find in the Old Testament. 
In biblical studies, this is called hermeneutics. It's this long word that isn't actually that complicated. It just looks like it is. Um, So some people kind of have the approach of like, why do I need these special things? Can't I just read the Bible for what it is? Um, So this was the claim of the reformers during church history, um, talking about the perspicuity of scripture. So they're arguing that certainly it is true that we can all read the Bible, but this is just added, how can we help to read the Bible better? Um, So it's certainly the case that we want everyone to read it, but maybe here at the front we could talk about some of the cautions with just reading it. If we think we don't need anything else um, besides the Bible, um, we could have some help along the way. And so I want to talk about maybe why we would need that. So I can reveal an awful lot of information tonight, and you might listen very attentively to it. Um, But what you understand by what I'm saying and what I intend um, might not be exactly the same. So hopefully there will be some overlap. Uh, But we have different understandings and experiences that color how we understand the words we hear. And so your understanding of what I say um, will certainly differ at some points. That difference uh, becomes even greater when we cross cultures and languages. Uh, So hermeneutics can act as this bridge between us, between the ancient world of the text and us reading it today. So hermeneutics is the process by which we interpret or how we go about understanding a text. Within biblical studies, uh, when we say hermeneutics, we typically mean something along the lines of valid methods for unearthing what the Bible means or ways of confirming um, the most reasonable interpretations of any text. So in a narrow sense, It means methods and techniques, uh, better or worse, interpretations. However, hermeneutics has been described um, in two different ways that I think are helpful. The first one is as a theory of interpretation. Um, But also, it's been said that it's the art of understanding. So we can talk about it as theory or science of interpretation, which uh, suggests there are rules or methods to follow or as an art, which suggests something more along the lines of like creativity and flexibility, each person appreciating something different. So I think it's helpful to kind of hold those two things in tension, that it's not this automatic tools. If you follow these, you'll get the exact right answer. Um, And certainly in that mix, we'll talk about um, the role of the Holy Spirit in that, that we're being led toward what God wants us to hear from his word. So in that, um, another thing that's helpful when we're just thinking about interpretation in general uh, is this thing, um, it's Barton's interpretive map. It started with Ladigan, this other person. Um, But what he does is lays out this map where we talk about the world behind the text, the world of the text, and the world in front of the text. So I want to talk through those for just a minute. Um, So when we're talking about the world behind the text, we're saying we want to know some things about the history, the historical background, the context in which the Bible was written, that knowing those things, knowing the world behind the text can help us to rightly interpret the text as we're reading it. So we want to pay attention to that. At the same time, if we're in the world of the text, that middle part, 
we're wanting to read the Bible like any other literature. So we would want to be paying attention closely to the details. We want to know about the textual history, all sorts of things about the actual words or language of the text we're reading. That information is helpful to us. And then at the same time, we are in the world in front of the text. So, right, we're we are further on in history than when the text was written. And so there's this recognition that we need to have of what is our contemporary lens? What are the things, the questions we might have we bring to the text, which are important, but we, we kind of want to recognize where we are in orientation to the text. What are maybe modern concerns that we're bringing into the text that it can answer, but maybe it didn't really know anything about um, some scientific discovery we've had since then or things like that. Um, so those are the different areas when we come into interpretation that we want to be thinking about or keeping in the back of our mind. When I uh, was in Cambridge, I was actually doing some teaching for Ridley College Melbourne as well, um, which was some online teaching. And I really liked in their model when they talked about this interpretive map, they added for us this thing they called the world above the text. So every time they had a student starting their program, they would talk about going through kind of a circle and they would say, start with the world above the text by praying and saying, Holy Spirit, guide me. So this idea of God's sovereignty and authority over our interpretation of the text. So invoking that when we come to the text and then paying attention to all of these other, what we're calling the worlds, as we look at a text and then coming back around to how do I apply this? So I find that to be a helpful thing to kind of think around all the different aspects of interpretation. Uh, when we're thinking about it generally, and I'm sure you'll hear more about interpretation from Vic next week. Um, but let's get into Old Testament because we've got a lot of books to cover. Don't worry, we won't talk about every one of them tonight. Um, but I want us to kind of walk through these different genres. So let's take, um, we're going to walk through these various genres, but I want us to simultaneously be doing an overarching story of example texts. So I've sort of taking us through the genres and through the story at the same time. Um, so we'll begin at the beginning with Genesis 1 to 11, uh, starting with creation. And we will find that each chapter is addressing universal concerns um, or common to all humanity. So questions there you can see on your slide about where do we come from? What is God like? Uh, what is our purpose in this world? So the answers to these questions given in the first 11 chapters of the Bible lay a foundation for fuller answers to come about the nature of God and his relationship with humanity. But they're this very large scope sort of um, piece in these first 11 chapters. Um, and at the same time, we want to keep in mind that world behind the text. Um, so in doing so, we're thinking about what did other people believe at this time? Um, in the ancient world. And that really helps us to have a point of contrast um, because one of the things that the text is doing is it's giving a theological explanation for everything, and but that's being contrasted with what other people believe. So it might not seem very groundbreaking to us that there's only one God, but in the space where it was written, that's a really radical claim. So we're going to kind of have some touch points where I'm introducing you to some concepts in the ancient world um, by way of comparison, just to show you, you know, what is unique? What is the Bible claiming that's really different um, in that ancient Near Eastern space? Um, 
So here, we'll start with Genesis 1. I've just called this origins text, but what I mean by that is those big questions um, for all of humanity are being addressed in these first 11 chapters, and this is just our example text. Um, so here, even in 1.1, in this claim, I've said, in the beginning, God created. So here, um, sorry, um, we've said that in these first few words, that's striking um, as an ancient Israelite version of creation, there is only one God. Um, so among all of the ancient cultures like Egypt and Babylonia and all of these places, to claim that there's only one God was a really distinct belief. Um, so this stands in stark contrast to what other cultures believe. When we read on in verse 3 and hear how the world was formed through mere speech, and God said, let there be light, on its own, this might not seem revolutionary, uh, but compared with other ancient Near Eastern stories, this is a claim about God's sovereignty and authority. Um, so other ancient Near Eastern creation stories have the world being made through the slaughter of another god. This starts getting in strange territory, um, which is the case with the Babylonian creation myth. So in that story, we have Marduk, this god, who splits Tiamat, another god's body, in two, and that's how the heavens and the earth are made. Um, so it's more about this cosmic battle sort of idea, not a supreme god who just speaks everything into existence. Um, so I certainly don't want to give you the impression that for the rest of the night, you have to have this like super special knowledge to interpret the Bible, but it is helpful to see that when we consider the ancient world of the text, it gives us a good point of contrast um, to see how they answered these big questions really differently um, than their neighbors, even if they wrote them in similar forms. So it's helpful um, to ask about this kind of polemical function. What did they believe over against other people? And then um, a slightly different approach. Uh, so the first one here, I'll go ahead and put that up, was this question of, uh, what did people believe at this time? We could keep asking that question, but I want us to think more about those four um, fronted questions I gave you. So I'll put those up there now. Those questions of more generally, what is God like? Where do we come from? And what is our purpose in this world? So as we read about each of the days, um, what God created, we hear an orderly account uh, and a recurring pronouncement from God uh, that it is good. So we, we have one example in verse 10, but we get this recurring pronouncement of God. Um, from this, we can see that God intentionally creates a habitable world of good things. Um, so that's not always the case in these other stories. And again, um, that's a, like the other stories have like the capricious will of the gods or like they accidentally created people. Um, and here, this last um, point here, when we hear in verse 27, God created man in his image. We hear about um, the rulership that God gives humanity um, that's very different from these other ancient Near Eastern accounts where people are created to serve the gods or things like that, where God is really giving us a role on purpose in his world. Um, so those things are helpful to see what is God like um, compared to these other ideas of what God is like. What did we come from? right, is we came from God. God is our source. Um, he created us intentionally. And then we'll talk more about this purpose in the world um, as we get into talking about Abraham. But um, here we hear um, just a lot of things that 
maybe have gotten routine for us. We think, oh, I've always thought this, but reading them again freshly and thinking, what does this really tell me about what the God I believe in is like? If I didn't know any of this before, or if you've studied a lot of other religions, you might already see some contrasts with um, religions today um, about what they believe about God. Um, So all of this might seem kind of um, mundane or like we already know it, but it's really foundational for everything that's going to come after. So here we've said these are all origins texts. Um, Here we get creation first. Then if you wanted to carry on this sort of um, questioning, we would get into Genesis 3. We hear about where evil comes from, right? So this big question, why are there evil things and how did it enter the world with the fall? Um, We hear about why there was a great flood. Um, It had to do with increasing corruption and people forgetting about God. And in chapters 10 and 11, we hear about where did all these other nations and all these other languages come from? So we get a lot of these kind of big questions about origins in these first 11 chapters. Um, But all along the way, they're telling us what God is like. um, And that's going to be obviously going to be carrying on throughout the rest of our reading of the Old Testament. So then this first section ends with chapter 11, about before the first few verses, ending verses of 11, we get we start hearing about Abraham, but basically Genesis 12, um, we narrow down and shift into narrative genre um, where it's not this um, cosmic scope of things. It narrows down to talk about Israelite ancestors. So here we've shifted genre. Um, It's still story form, but it's more um, talking about Israel's ancestors in a very focused way. So, we have from Genesis 12 all the way through to two kings, so or second kings, however you want to say. Um, so we get Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Right? We've got a lot of books where you can just read all the way through, and you're going to get one continuous story. So this is like our favorite part on interpretation because it's fairly straightforward um, because we have this continuous story. Um, And here, one of the main things that seems kind of simple is just a literary method to keep in mind. You wouldn't just pick up a novel and start reading in chapter 12. Um, So here, it's really helpful for us if we will keep this larger story in our mind, what some people have called the meta-narrative of the Bible. If we will, at some point in our life, read through from Genesis all the way to two Kings, we'll just read it like a book. We'll have a lot better way to then go back to maybe one specific chapter and do a detailed study. Um, But here we want to get this overarching um, scope of the story of God and his relationship with his people. So we hear about Israel's ancestors and how God was shaping a nation from a single man, Abraham, and his growing and complicated family, if you've been reading the text. And it takes us through to the end of Genesis. So it's kind of the ancestors. Then um, I want us to pause for a moment to put one guiding interpretive question before us that requires us to pay attention to several different factors as we read through this big swath of text. Um, So we should constantly be asking, how is it going with the covenant? Um, We could talk more about what covenant is, but For tonight, we're going to simplify it and pretend like there's only one covenant, (laughs) but all of these different covenants that God makes with Abraham and with Moses, all of his commitments to his people and what that entails, we want to keep asking about those things. How's it going between God and his people? That's what we mean by this question. How's it going with the covenant? 
Um, so there are some aspects of that question uh, that we could be more focused about. So we want to know how is their relationship with God. Um, then also we're keeping tabs on um, how is their relationship with e each other thinking um, first of the family dynamics when we only hear about Abraham and his kind of small family, uh, but then opening that up to the well-being of the whole nation. Then we should be asking, um, are they in the land? This is a hard one for us to relate to usually, um, but the importance of the land and seeing that as um, God's faithfulness or how they're doing in their relationship with God, all of these things are interrelated. So we want to keep tabs on, are they in the promised land? Or are they outside of the promised land? And then finally, how's the relationship with neighbors? So we'll see throughout the Old Testament, there's a lot of influence um, from foreign nations. And um, are they being oppressed? Are they, is there someone occupying the land? All of these sorts of things relate to that kind of international relations piece. Um, so all of these questions help us to stay oriented amidst a massive host of details, right? There's lots of people with lots of crazy names who live for a really long time. And so amidst all of those details, we want to know what's kind of the big picture of what God's doing with his people and how are they responding? Um, so we want to stay on this main plot line, right? We're just talking about narrative um, and have this constant eye toward their purpose um, in the world. What is Israel there to do? Um, rather than, say, seeking to emulate main characters. A lot of people will pick up and read the Bible and say, I should be like David. And in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. And it doesn't say this is how you do that. So we can get great sermons and we can make good points about that, but we don't want to lose this overarching story about how God chose to reveal himself and what we can learn about God through that bigger picture. Um, so after Genesis, we hear about their time in Egypt under foreign oppression and God leading them out uh, in Exodus. And we'll pause there for our example text because it's a big key piece of this big story. So the Exodus account is probably familiar to a lot of you. If you ever went to what I would call vacation Bible school, we called it holiday club in the UK, I think. Um, but this very familiar story about um, the Israelites being down in Egypt and being oppressed, and then they have the plagues and Pharaoh won't let them go, and then they're led out of Egypt by Moses, right? So this familiar story. Um, here, I've highlighted a couple of, couple of things for us. So I want us to rethink about that story with this question about how is it going with the covenant? Because when we're reading in Genesis about the growing family, we're thinking, okay, this promise of family is going well. But when we open the book of Exodus and they're still outside the land, this should be a cue for us that things, you know, the covenant hasn't been fully fulfilled yet. They're not in their own land. They're down in Egypt and they're being oppressed. So we're doing well on the family is growing. Um, in this in-between time, it's about 300 years between the end of Genesis and when we open in Exodus. Um, but at the same time, they're outside the land and their relationship with God, right, is intention because they're in a land that follows other gods and even the king of Egypt is seen to be divine as well. So there's this, this tension about what they believe and they're calling out to God for help. Um, so we start to see how God is using uh, the people's circumstances to shape them in who he wants them to be. 
So they are people who have to rely on him. When we read about this account, they have to keep crying out to God and going to Moses. Um, and they'll come to know he's not a God like the other gods. He's not like Pharaoh. He's not like these other Egyptian gods. Um, even in that account, we get more of that kind of polemical sense of this almost like battle between Pharaoh and God and seeing how God is powerful, um, even in Egypt where Pharaoh rules, that he's an ultimate God who's more powerful um, than uh, Pharaoh. So we start seeing a bit about this question about on your right-hand side, what God is like. Um, so here, as we're wrapping up that account, um, Pharaoh finally declares, right? He keeps changing his mind if they can leave or they can't. But when he finally says they can leave Egypt, um, Pharaoh declares, up, go out from among my people, serve the Lord, hear um, the divine name Yahweh, as you have said, take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. And then later on, we hear a few verses later, a mixed multitude also went up with them. So when I'm thinking about the covenant, I'm thinking, this is how's it going with the covenant? They're headed back in the right direction, right? They're leaving Egypt. They're going toward the promised land. Uh, he's allowing them to take their possessions. So they've grown in number while they're there, but they're then able to take their flocks and their herds. And then there's also more people being added to them. They're taking people in, as we hear here in verse 38. It wasn't just the Hebrew people, the Israelites who had gone down to Egypt. There are more people who are leaving with them. Um, so part of that covenant was that the people would be blessed to be a blessing. And we start seeing that in lots of ways before this. Um, but these people are also being liberated alongside the Israelites and being taken into that group of people. So we can see um, some of those questions starting to be answered. Um, here I want to kind of emphasize um, just the, the different kind of knowing um, that we get from the Old Testament. So it wasn't that they had this doctrinal belief that God dropped out of the sky and said, I am a deliverer. But instead, we start hearing about the nature of God being their deliverer and that they have actually experienced that in their life. And then this becomes a really key piece of them telling their story and shaping them um, into a people that really trust God. And it's through that experience. Um, so here, I think that's a really important thing for us to see that God didn't reveal himself um, by just dropping this kind of pamphlet. Here's what you need to know. Um, but that we get this story. So that's why it's important that we know the story because it reveals to us the character of God um, and it shows us what he's like in relationship. Um, so here we'll keep going. I know we've gone kind of slowly wading in, uh, but we'll pick up the pace a bit. Um, our next genre we're going to talk about is law. So embedded within this big swath of text, I said, right, you could go from Genesis 12, really Genesis 1 is narrative, through um, all the way to two kings. Within that, we have this section that has mostly legal material or law from Exodus to Deuteronomy. Um, but so it's like encouched in narrative, right? It's not just abstracted laws, you should do this. We have a story about God and it's embedded within that. So that's a really important thing to, to remember um, just to begin with. It's a story of why they're doing these things. Um, but in all this, we would do well to see um, this for what it is. It's not this comprehensive legal system like we think about our laws today. Um, 
but it's instructions for how God desires us to live and what's required for God to dwell among them. Um, So this is this first point here, how to live with God. Um, So when we think about the laws in this way, we remember um, that since the Garden of Eden, God hasn't been just dwelling with the people in their community. He's been communicating with certain people, um, but it isn't until his presence comes down at Mount Sinai um, to dwell in the tabernacle that he is able to live among the people. And so a lot of these instructions are God saying, this is what I need your community of people to be like and how you need to be holy in order for me to be able to live among you. Um, So first we have the traveling tent of God's dwelling with the tabernacle, which later is more permanent with the temple. Um, But all of these instructions are important for God to be able to live with them. So we have to keep that kind of relational aspect of it as a foundation instead of just getting lost in like, why don't they eat bacon? (laughs) Right. We can kind of miss the the big point for the, the details of what they're doing. Um. So here, I've also found it very helpful um, to look at the various functions, so point two, and the principles of transfer that John Walton talks about when he's approaching um, legal texts. So um, John Walton was actually a teacher of my husband's. He still teaches at Wheaton, and I just got to enjoy free spousal audits when we lived in Chicago, Um, but he sort of adopted me as like a pseudo student, which is nice. Um, But these are coming from him. He talks about these different functions of the law. Um, So we have a sociological function, right? This is a people who is growing into a nation. Um, So the sociological function of a lot of these laws is to maintain order and also to live out holiness. So it gives some kind of shape to what what society should look like. Um, It also has a covenantal function. So when we're talking about Deuteronomy, how little and much to give you. Uh, Deuteronomy is crafted in this ancient Near Eastern treaty form. So it's like God is saying, I'm like the, the, the Lord and you're the vassal. So I'm going to do this for you. And here's what I expect you to do. So it's like an agreement that the people are saying, we're going to follow you and we're going to do these things. So in that way, we see these laws as stipulations of, a, of like a contract. The people have said, we sign up for this. We do want to follow you and we know this is what it entails. Um, So the stipulations that Israel bought into um, and that actually we see um, each generation has to say, we're still up for that. We would still like to do life with God. Um, And then finally, the sanctifying function. So responsibilities of holiness. What does it look like um, that as we do these things, we're actually being formed into the kind of people uh, that God wants us to be? So that kind of helps us to think about maybe different functions of the law. Um, But when you're actually approaching the text and reading it, you could ask these kind of work through these questions. Um, So if I want to take a law, I want to understand as much as I can about the ancient law or its original context. Uh, Secondly, I want to find the underlying principle, kind of why are they doing this? Um, Then we want to know what does that tell us about God? And then how should we act? So there's not this kind of automatic transfer all the time. Even things that seem automatic, which is the example I'm going to give you, we could gain more if we'll walk through these steps. Um, So here, I want us to think about the Sabbath, um, which 
is a law in kind of the more classical sense to us. There are lots of texts that kind of say, if such and such happens, then this should happen. This is more clearly the thou shouts and thou shalt not. Um, but here with Sabbath, we actually get um, the Ten Commandments twice uh, in, in this um, section. So in Exodus 20, we hear the Ten Commandments the first time. And then on the next slide, I'll give you when we hear them again in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is basically one day when Moses stands up and gives this like three sermons. Um, but he's just reiterating and kind of further explaining the law. So that's why we get it twice. But in the first telling, it says here in Exodus 20, to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do uh, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here um, we get that the reason why they should be doing this is that God created the world in seven days and on the seventh day he rested, right? So we have, um, if we went back to our rules, we want to understand the ancient law. This one's pretty simple. On the Sabbath, they don't do things. Um, sometimes it's a little bit less clear what exactly and why. Um, the underlying principle, right, we've said is creation because God rested on the seventh day. They should too. What does it tell us about God? Um, here we have lots of things that could tell us about God. God doesn't need us to constantly work. God wants to give us rest. Um, God didn't create us just to work. We could talk about this really in depth, and I love Sabbath, so I'll try to keep moving. Um, but how should we act, right? We should keep the Sabbath. Um, and in what ways we do that, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but here, right, that underlying principle is the point I really want to hone in on. So here it was um, because God rested. So we, we imitate, right? We are holy because God is holy. We imitate this same action of God. Um, but then here, when we get to Deuteronomy, we get a different reason. Um, so it says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So here, when we kind of walk through those same things, we see that the underlying principle here is that their experience of deliverance um, in, in the Exodus event is the reason why they rest, and it's also the reason why they extend rest to other people. Um, so here, this is important that their story of how God delivered them, that God didn't make them work seven days like Pharaoh. God says you only have to work six days and then you can rest. That we see that that works itself out into ethics, into how they should live. So their story creates in them this um, wanting to, to follow God because he's delivered them. But it also creates this story that helps to explain why they're extending that to other people, that that everyone should have rest. Um, so we could keep going there. Um, but here, 
you can see how even simple things like keep the Sabbath, I already know to keep the Sabbath, that they have really deep theological roots that we could explore. Right, so we'll keep moving. Um, so here, just by way of summary for this law section, um, I really like this quote by Gordon McConville. He has one of his recent books is called Being Human in God's World. It just explains um, or walks through different aspects of what it, it means to be, um, what it is to be human um, in the way God intended. And he says, far from being simply law code, it is conceived as a means of bringing a society to maturity. Um, so that formative part of the law in an understanding of what makes for a good life, right? God wants to kind of spell out ways that his society should function in these legal texts. So we say, I'm free from the law under the new covenant. That is certainly true. But what I want us to see here is that if we go back and look at laws, the reason God gave them, it still tells us something about who God is and the sorts of actions God wants us to have. Sometimes that's more automatic than others, but we would do well to try to explore those things for, for law texts. So we'll keep going. It's so weird to have everyone muted. I can like see you responding. <laughs> um, right. So here, um, before we get into the genre of wisdom and poetry, uh, let's remember kind of where we are canonically in the Old Testament. Um, there are a few more narrative books that we've skipped over. So we've skipped over First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Um, they come after Second Kings before we get into these wisdom and poetry books, um, the first of which is Job. Um, but these remaining narrative books, they retell part of the story we've already talked about, um, or they're looking forward beyond where we're going. So we're kind of just like setting them up on a shelf for a minute. And we'll come back around, but you could follow through with the same sorts of narrative questions for those texts. So after the narrative books end, the next genre we see is wisdom and poetry. As far as the flow of the story, this section is a pause in the way of these books, as you can see there to the right, are kind of timeless. Um, so they're not particularly oriented to a historical event. Um, they are just poetry and wisdom from the ancient Israelites um, that have this timeless quality. So if you've been tuning in uh, a few weeks ago, Nathan Maxwell talked about the Psalms. I'm sure he talked about this kind of quality of the Psalms, right? That you can just pick up and you can open the Psalms and you can relate it to your life because they're kind of vague sometimes about what the situation is. It's just Israel's prayers to God. Um, it doesn't always tell us in the middle of the exile, this was happening to me and right they're, they're, they're timeless and they're not specific in their historical occasion. Um, so here, um, the Psalms are poetry as is song of songs. Some people talk about it as wisdom. So we'll talk about it in this section. Um, some people call it song of Solomon, um, but we have Psalms, Song of Solomon, and then we also have our three classic wisdom books, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. So when we talk about wisdom literature, um, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs, we have a mix of what we've called here on our slide traditional and skeptical wisdom. Um, so essentially, Proverbs, in its traditional wisdom role, these are just labels, um, says this is the way life works and ecclesiastes and job say except when it doesn't uh so here in other words skeptical wisdom with job and ecclesiastes address the exceptions in life um, when it doesn't seem to go as it should 
In this way, the Bible provides us with this holistic guide for what to expect normally and then what to do when it doesn't go that way. Um, and even just what to do, right, to, to be able to speak honestly to God. We'll talk more about these things. But if you're trying to kind of piece the big genres together and how they work, um, that's an easy one for me to, to kind of think about this double-sided coin of um, what to expect with Proverbs and then the exceptions with Job and Ecclesiastes. So as we move to kind of how do we interpret these Old Testament uh, wisdom books, um, I think it's helpful to, for us to hear a little bit about their aim in order to know how to best approach them. So with Proverbs, we've said this is how life should go. Um, but at the same time, right, there, these, a lot of it is this saying, sentence sayings. Um, they're, they're easy to remember. Um, but here we do well to see them as guides and not guarantees. So even in Proverbs, it'll say one thing. I was trying to look for a quick example and didn't have time to put it in here. But it'll say um, one thing and back to back, it'll give another example that seems to counteract what it's just said. That's because you can't just take one proverb and apply it all the time. You're supposed to have the wisdom to know when to apply them. Um, so part of it has this um, formative or didactic function of teaching wisdom by the very act of knowing when to apply them. Um, so lots, lots more we could say about proverbs, but it's not very big compared to the whole testament. Um, but here, yeah, character formation, not good advice for every situation. Then when we get into Ecclesiastes and Job, um, here we're seeing that it demonstrates this honest struggle with God, that we can talk to God honestly about um, what has happened in our life or the way we're trying to make sense of God's justice in the world. These, these questions um, about what about when it doesn't seem like the, the righteous are flourishing and the wicked are perishing like we hear about in Proverbs. Um, and these function a lot like the Lament Psalms. Um, that in those moments, what it's showing us that we need to do is to be able to still come to God about all the situations, not just, <clears throat> sorry, um, not turn away from God when we don't understand or um, when we can't make sense of situations. Um, then finally, with Song of Songs, um, here we have love poetry in its um, most basic form. Um, but I really like Ellen Davis on Song of Songs. She talks a lot about how the, I'm sure you've heard the, um, how you can think about Song of Songs as God and his relationship to his people or Christ and the church, um, both of these analogies of God's love for us. Um, she talks about how that's mutually enforcing what we experience as humans in our desire um, for one another in marital relationships um, and even other relationships that are intimate. Um, so here we see that the book of Song of Songs is part of this recognition of our whole people, our holistic people that are made for intimacy, not only with God, but with each other. Um, and there's a lot of talk about creation in Song of Songs. Um, so there's this holistic part about even just our relationship, um, not to the earth as like a being, um, but just the harmony that God has created all of his creation for. So we could talk about all kinds of things like that, but Song of Songs kind of jumps back and forth between it could be a wisdom book, it is definitely poetry, so we threw it into this section. Um, but if we can think about those as their larger aims, that kind of helps us when we go to an individual chapter of these books 
and try to make sense of what's going on. And I'm happy, this is like my favorite area. So I'm happy to take questions on this, but I want us to be able to keep moving. Um, so here, just to wrap this section up, I stole this quote from my husband's slides and he forgot to cite where he found it. And we Googled and Googled and couldn't find it. So it says author unknown. <laughs> so if you know who said this quote, I'd be happy to know. Um, but it's talking about wisdom. Wisdom books is about learning the discipline of walking in faith amidst the perplexing circumstances of life. Um, so I love that the these Old Testament books are really realistic about how complex or how difficult life can be, and that's still part of life with God. Um, all right, everyone's favorite genre of prophecy. Um, so as we continue on in the canon, after poetry and wisdom books, we finish out the Old Testament with prophetic books. This is where the story of Israel picks up again, um, or picks back up with the divided monarchy. We're going to talk about this in our review. Um, but the, the story of Israel, the prophets um, cover before the exile, um, during divided monarchy, during the exile itself, and just after the exile or post-exile. So we actually hear about the beginning of this time period with First and Second Kings, just to start making things really complicated. Um, so realizing that the pre-exilic prophetic books overlap with the narrative of First and Second Kings doesn't make coordinating them um, any less tedious, but it is helpful piece of information if you're trying to keep the story straight. So basically, you're going to get, uh, I try to tell my students um, this way, that the narratives tell the important overarching details about kings and nations, right, this larger picture, while the prophetic books give us this detailed window into moments in the story. And they're speaking usually more explicitly about God's perspective on the events through the prophets. So in the same way that, um, I'm, I'm doing Dick's job now. When you, when you read the book of Acts, you hear about the early church, and then you go read Paul's letters, and they're more specific about what life was like in the early church. It's a, So you have to kind of take Paul's letters and then like map them onto Acts. You do the same thing with the prophetic books. So you take the prophetic books like Hosea or Amos or Isaiah, and then you say, how can I kind of figure out where this is in the narrative account I've already read? So you kind of have to pinpoint them back in. Um, so here, uh, once you're able, then this answers our first question. Well, I'm jumping ahead. One of our questions is determining the historical context. One of those is going to be, how can I figure out where this small book is in relation to this big story? Um, but before we get there, um, I want us to keep in mind these three things, uh, and we'll talk more about them. One is that these prophetic texts are not merely prediction. Um, so I want to read a little bit about that. Um, then that they have this aim, um, usually, of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. That's kind of like a prophetic mode. Um, and then I'm going to give us some key interpretive questions when we get to specific texts. So kind of how do I even approach these texts? Because they're a little bit more impenetrable than narrative, say. Um, so here, um, I am taking a bit from uh, David Firth. Uh, I'll, he's cited on the next slide. Um, but many people tend to treat prophecy primarily as prediction, right? We, it's really important as Christians that we can see clearly how the Old Testament 
points us to Jesus. That is super important. We just here, I want us to see that's not the only thing that it does. Um, so here, Fee and Stewart in their little book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, I put a little image there if that's helpful. It's a really great book to just pick up and if you're interested in interpreting the Bible more like these classes. Um, but they make the point in there that only 2% of the Old Testament prophetic texts offer some form of long distance or messianic prophecy. So here, those are really key texts for us, but kind of what else does it do outside of those pointers to who Christ is and who he came to be? Um, so here, um, there are those predictions, um, but they are always about these more immediate circumstances of Israel and Judah and how they needed to hear from God at that particular time. And that reminds us that prophets were always speaking in this particular historical context. So they're not just like throwing out predictions just because they could. Even when we find predictions from the prophets, what they're doing is giving these predictions because God's people needed them at that time. So even if it's just to say there is hope coming, that they, that they don't see the person of Christ, that they can just take comfort in knowing that God will make things right eventually. Um, but much of the time, they're not doing that. Much of the time, they wish to say um, things that are going to afflict the comfortable, right? So they have really harsh words to say. Um, if people are living in affluence, but they've got it through in, um, unjust means, um, they're really critical of kings who aren't faithfully following what God wants. Um, so that's what we mean by afflict the comfortable um, and comfort the afflicted, right? A lot of the time during this pre exilic period, and um, into the exile and even post-exile, Israel's being controlled by these really powerful nations. And so the people's lives are completely, right, seemingly out of their control. It's hard to trust in God in those circumstances. And so the prophets are coming to them saying, God has spoken to us. God has reassured us, you know, that these things are going to be made right. Um, or if they're acting in sin and not trusting God, they're saying, you're going to go into exile because you haven't done what God has said or you haven't repented. Um, so those are, there are lots of different aspects of this um, summary of comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Um, so here, uh, this is one of the more detailed ones. I think this is um, one of the harder genres for us to, to get into. So I've given us a little bit more specific um, instruction and example. So this is coming from David Firth, who is um, a colleague I really enjoyed. Uh, we, we run um, the Old Testament uh, section of Tyndale Fellowship in, in Cambridge together. And um, he is much the wiser than me, uh, but he teaches at Trinity College Bristol. And he talks about understanding prophecy with these interpretive questions. Um, and other people would have really similar kind of three-step process. Um, but first one is, what is the historical context? So again, this question about the world behind the text, what can we know about that to help us understand and get oriented? What are the boundaries of the oracle? Here, I'm starting to lose some of you, and that's fine. Um, but what we mean by that is, how can I get like um, a, a section of this prophecy that makes sense? It, it might stand alone, like we might imagine a prophet spoke one section one day, and maybe a year later spoke another section, and then when it got written down, they put them, they just flow one into the other. Um, but you can see like a hard break. So we're trying to say, what kind of occasion is going on with this oracle that God said, thus say the Lord, say this. 
um, versus a, another section in the book. So we're trying to, to break it into sensible, almost like paragraphs. Um, and here, um, it's probably makes it more complicated, but um, a lot of the, the paragraphs and the verse and um, the verse markings and chapter markings in prophetic texts can sometimes be not as helpful. So a section might continue on into the next chapter. So if we're reading bigger sections of text, it's really good for prophecy um, because sometimes those chapter and verse breaks kind of break up the middle of a speech, if you will. Whereas if you'll keep reading into the next chapter, you'll kind of see the the end or the rounding out of the thought. Um, so just a, especially with these prophetic texts, it's helpful to make sure that you've reached the kind of conclusion of um, the sense of what's going on. And then finally, what form of prophetic speech is used? So here, um, this, is, this is about the world of the text. Um, so if you talked with Dr. Maxwell about different forms like lament psalms versus hymns, there are these different forms of literature. So here, prophetic speech has these kind of similar formats. So like if you're writing a business letter, you would say, dear Miss so-and-so, whereas if you were writing a fairy tale, you'd say once upon a time. So we're talking about what are those forms we can refer to and here, um, often prophetic speech is couched in legal language. So it's set up like a courtroom scene. Um, so often it will, it will have that kind of courtroom um, setting. Or we have the, the common um, oracles of thus says the Lord. Um, but even more specifically than that, we will often get the woe sayings or the some versions will translate alas. So it's like making these negative proclamations of things that that will go wrong. Um, so we're trying to say what's maybe the form of prophetic speech that's being used here. So it's like a literary analysis. All right. So in our last few minutes here, um, I want us to just look at this text, Amos 5, 18 to 27. And to keep me on track, I'm just going to read read on with you going through those three questions. So first, what is the historical context? So outside of these verses, if we just backed up to the beginning of Amos as a book, in 1-1, one, one, um, it gives us a date reference to a group of kings. So that's how you can take a prophetic book and map it back to that narrative. Um, so here, Amos 1-1 one, one was about um, when the prophet was active um, and those kings that are there tell us he was active in the middle of the 8th century. Um, he was active as a person from Judah. So the southern king, um, he's from the southern kingdom, but he's active in the northern kingdom, Israel. And even the writer of Kings in 2 Kings 14, who almost never says nice things about the kings of the north, um, the kings of Israel, has to admit that the king here, Jeroboam, was successful even if he continued in the worship of Jeroboam the first, um, which was not the worship of Yahweh, right? He's not, he's saying that was bad, but he talks about that there's great prosperity during this time um, when Amos is prophesying in the north, right? They're very affluent in the north when Amos is coming from like Bumpkinville, Judah, and he's going up to the north. Um, so it helps us to understand how things were going. They might look like they're going fine in Israel, right? They're prospering. But what it's saying here is that even though he, Jeroboam and his reign looks good in that way, Amos is going to have negative things to say about his relationship with God, right? Because he's not following Yahweh. 
Um, so it's helpful for us if we have that kind of background context to then say, okay, now what is Amos saying and how is God speaking into that situation through him? Um, so here more specifically, they're gaining their, um, they're accumulating more land from the poor. So the affluent in the north um, is taking, they're taking away land from the poor people in, in the north. So we have this this disparity and this issue of um, injustice going on. I'm gonna cut this down a little bit. Um, so in the midst of this, people are desiring the day of the Lord. So we're going back to, they think everything is going great. Um, and so exactly what the day of the Lord is, um, is not made clear in this text, but the prophets assume um, that we know what it is. So it's this kind of commonplace thing at this time. And Amos is probably the first prophet to actually mention it. Uh, but it appears to be an idea that God would at some stage come and bring a great victory uh, to his people overcoming their enemies. So they're like, yes, we want the day of the Lord to come. Um, and into that situation, Amos says, alas, so this is that woe oracle um, form. It's taken from a funeral service. This is a, a common phrase that would be used in funeral services. So Amos is using this funeral type form to make this announcement to the north to say, what you think is good news is actually going to be your funeral is, is kind of what he's, what he's doing. Um, so here um, he's doing it in poetry. So here we're seeing why it's sometimes so hard to penetrate into these books is because we've got a prophetic mode in poetry in this special form, and we've got to reorient ourselves to the history. Um, so that's where a commentary is really helpful. So we don't have to have one, but it, it helps us to kind of know where to look. Um, so he's saying in, when they're saying, what will the day of the Lord be like? He's saying darkness, not light. So it's not going to be good for you because you haven't been following God. Um, so, and then um, it starts talking about God hating their festivals. So if we just plucked this part out, um, right? Verse 21, I hate and despise your feasts. We would think, well, God, what, like, why does he hate and despise their feasts, right? That can be kind of random what is going on here. Um, but here, it's not that God hates every festival, but these festivals of the Northern kingdom is where they're choosing um, to worship apart from the ways of God. Um, and not only a way they're worshiping outside of their center of worship, which is supposed to be Jerusalem and the South. Um, but he's saying at the same time, you're also doing these unjust things. So you're not worshiping rightly and you're not treating people rightly. And so therefore the day of the Lord is not going to be good. Like you think it is, it's going to be um, bad news for you. Um, so I'm going to skip through these next bits. Um, basically the boundaries of the Oracle, I've put them into three sections. So these might've been three different times that Amos spoke these things, um, because they, they seem like hard breaks, right? They're talking about different things, but they're all part of this situation in the Northern kingdom. And then finally, um, we've noted that we have this woe form here. Um, but if you have a look later at different um, prophetic forms of speech, it'll help you. Um, like Job is going to use that, that court formula and be talking about bringing his case before God. Um, you'll start to see that you get these same types of forms across different prophetic books. So they become less strange 
the more often you see the same sort of thing crop up. All right, so, oh, those were our three questions. Um, by way of summary here, um, I wanted us just to, <clears throat> I've tried to touch on this as we went, but this is just an Old Testament storyline. And as we think about where do all the books fit, um, this might be a helpful, just here are the, the big pieces. There are other big pieces as well. Um, but we basically work from creation into stories about ancestors, into the exodus, the wilderness wandering, settling in the land. Once they've settled in the land, they first have a united monarchy, one nation, Israel. Then they divide into Israel and Judah. Then they go into exile. The south goes second. Um, and then they return. So here, when I said we're going to skip over these historical books, um, First and Second Chronicles retells First and Second, well, little bits of Samuel and First and Second Kings um, from a different perspective. But then Ezra and Nehemiah is really the narrative books that are going to tell us about that return from exile. And then um, Esther talks about even beyond the time they could return, what was life like outside of the land of Israel um, later on. So we might date books all over the place, but this helps us to, to keep track of where we are in the story and what's going on. Um, so many things to try to explain in one night, but I think I'll leave it there. I'm sure I've left myself open to a lot of questions, which I'm happy to answer. Um, but hopefully that gives you a good starting place. And I'm sure Trevor will answer all of your questions. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Um, hey, so uh, let me go ahead. Uh, can I go ahead and uh, quit your screen sharing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is that okay? All right. Let's go ahead and do that. Bring her back. Let's bring everybody back. All right. Can we give her a hand for this uh, really in-depth teaching. Um, let me just tell you, um, hold on, let me cancel spot real quick. Sorry, just did a technical thing. Great. Okay, um, let me just tell you how um, some of the slides and how succinctly you have broken down timelines and frameworks and movements of the Old Testament and interpretation. There was a lot of thought work that went into First off, that your slides look good. The design is beautiful. I'm like part pastor, part graphic designer. And so your font and everything else, one killer. That is the first time in life. My husband always tells me my slides look like the 1980s. So the only <laughs> hint is just to use Keynote because Apple is cool. It's really <laughs> Apple all cool. Apple, not now, me. Now, but here's the deeper thing or then like your slides look cool is that there is... Um, like we, Pastor Dale and I have said this before, which by the way, uh, he wish he could be here tonight. He could not be here. And he says hello to everybody. Um, like to simplicity is not simplistic. Like simplicity is complexity designed and the complexity of the old Testament that you had to, to make and it to simple man, there's a ton of thought work into that. And so whether all of you who are on this, you're, you're watching that and aware of that or not, um, there is some real brains and some heart going into the scripture and into how you are teaching it to us, Dr. Melton. So I, I commend you as somebody who goes, wow, she like boiled all that down incredibly, incredibly well. Thank um, you, Trevor. And you're you're welcome. Thank you. Embarrassing me. Oh, sorry. 
Um, and uh, I, one more thing, and then I'll throw it to Kathy for, we'll start off on our, our questions. Um, Pastor Dale and I have said the past couple of weeks, uh, our first instinct is to write a thank you, like to say thank you to our presenters. And then our second instinct is to apologize to them. I'm like, hey, you know that thing you've been studying for your life's work? Can you just take an hour and tell us about it? So um, we're sorry that you had to do that in an hour. And the format is it is it just is weird when everyone's on mute and you feel like you're talking to yourself, but you did fantastic. And so thank you so very much. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. My you. normal mode is like I'd love for us to be like sitting in the scripture and being like, go answer these questions and then we'll come back and talk about it. So um hopefully you'll be able to do that in your own study of the word um moving forward. Oh, I'm I'm sure we will. And we'll have you again, we'll have you back again sometime and Maybe we can do a different format too. Hopefully after coronavirus is over, right, everybody? Ooh, yep. Great. Awesome. All, All right. right. So uh, Kathy, why don't you uh, lead us off with some questions? Yeah. So I'm uh, excited to get at some questions here. Um, Laura mentioned, she said she wanted to just say she's been through an Old Testament survey class and she was amazed at how remarkably you were able to cover this. So it was a lot to cover. Um, but Ultimately, our goal is, you know, just for all of us to be able to become better readers of the Old Testament. So thanks for showing us the different genres and helping us know what questions to ask. So, um, so here's a question that we got early on. How do we interpret Eve being created out of Adam's rib as a co- opposed to directly being created by God as Adam was created? Um, yeah. So any uh, thoughts on that? Lots of thoughts. Um, One of the things I love to point out in my Genesis class is um, this word that we get for Eve um, being a helper, um, an ezer, is used about God in the Psalms. Um, So God as our helper, as our help meet, sometimes in um, archaic English, we get it translated, um, is the same word. Um, So we, we see here that it's not like just like Adam's sidekick or something like that. Um, But to say, actually, it's saying that it's about the intimacy um, that God has created us for as as man and woman, that we would be coming out of one another. Um, So it's more about that. We're of the same material. Um, We are to be um, interdependent um, in our, not codependent, but interdependent in our our relationships. yeah, there, there's so much um, richness there. Um, but it, it, if we go back to Genesis 1, um, we get this creation, uh, creation account um, from a different perspective where it says, and God created humanity. He created them male and female. So there we see there's no sort of differentiation in Genesis 1. Um, God just creates humanity. And it explicitly then says male and female. I think we're like one... 27 around about the late 20s um in in genesis one great thank you so much um so uh, again i think you talked earlier on about um the ancient near eastern cultures so it seems like it's helpful to be able to compare this these origins um passages with the ancient near eastern culture let me just ask the question where could somebody learn more about ancient Near Eastern culture in order to be able to kind of be making that comparison with the original readers? Yeah, I'm looking on my bookshelf. Um, there is, 
um, all of these books, The Lost World of Genesis 1, The Lost World of um, that John Walton has put out that are actually pitched at more of like a church going audience. Um, they're definitely not dumbed down. They're just kind of packaged in a more, um, they're, they're smaller books. Um, but he's a great resource of someone who's an evangelical. So he, he's going to be um, ascribing to the authority of scripture, but he's, mm-hmm. so he's using this information in a constructive way. Um, so he's able to say, here's how it's the same. Um, they use the same forms, but that doesn't mean that they're saying the same things. That doesn't mean that, that, there that one is um there's so much background here but essentially whenever there started being a lot of archaeological finds cropping up um there was a lot of fear of saying oh no now there's these other creation stories like it was competing um and i think after we got over that initial fear of saying well if all these texts talk about there was a flood in the ancient world that's actually a positive thing if we're saying that all of these cultures are saying the same thing happened, or it's not a bad thing if they talk about things in the same way. That's just how people talked then. Um, mm-hmm. That doesn't make them true. And so I think there's been more openness um, within evangelical um, academic spaces and, and more so in the churches to saying, how can we not use these as um, deconstructive um, things, but how can we see actually what are the distinctive things that that we believe and know are to be true when we see them over against what other people thought? Um, but certainly if it feels really foreign or strange, um, I remember in high school reading the Epic of Gilgamesh and thinking, oh no, like what? There's this other creation story. And I was, you know, up in arms at Mr. Sunday, my poor teacher. Um, but but I think um, if we're able to kind of sit back, it brings us to this like deeper trust and and mm. learning more about God um, and trusting that God is like bigger than um, these things or than our fears. Um, so John Walton was, has been really helpful to me and really pastoral to me and my husband. Um, so I trust him in that space. Uh, he's got loads of resources. Great. It's funny you mentioned Thank that. You. Yeah, I, I, I had a conversation about that this morning with some of my guys in reference to Noah. It's fascinating that you're referencing that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's weird. Cause you think like, well, all these cultures talk about these kind of people who, who had a boat and these similar things, but then you get underneath it and you're like, this character of God is so different in these stories and hasn't like played out to show itself to be faithful. And um, so of course these nearby cultures know about each other. It's like some of them are as close as the next state away. It's not like, and then they're like trading people in war all the time. So they're in contact um, with one another. So it'd be strange if they didn't, you know, speak about these same things. Um, yeah. Um, great. So we, we also had a question. Um, did Jesus replace the Old Testament or some of it? And um, I think ultimately, um, you know, part of the question is how do we relate to Old Testament laws now as Christians? So could you speak to that? Yeah, I tried to say a little bit about this, um, but I think a lot of um, a lot of the things. Uh, this is a little bit of a side tangent, but growing up, I kind of tried to do that um, like character emulation thing with all of the characters of the Old Testament, and like, how can I get like all of these qualities that are positive out of these characters instead of just saying like Jesus has given us the ultimate example of how we can follow God. 
And these other people may have great aspects. A lot of them have horrible flaws um, at the same time. And so to kind of step back from that and see what is God's overarching plan in the whole of this unfolding story and that Jesus wasn't like plan B. It's like God isn't a poor planner. He didn't like try the law and then that didn't work. And he was like, oh, and now I'll try Jesus. It's like all of this is this building blocks of how God is revealing himself. And so I think trying to see that they're not these competing things, that when Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law, he's, he's not trying to say the law was bad and I'm good or just forget about all of that stuff. He's saying, I'm going to further illuminate for you who God is by being present and walking before you. Um, but at the same time, um, he has saved us. So we don't need the law. Um, there's so much we could say about what people um, understood about the law. There's always grace involved. The people never thought they were perfect um, in the Old Testament. Um, but I think seeing Jesus as the ultimate um, part of God's revelation and the, the ultimate part of God's unfolding plan, um, that they work together um, rather than this kind of competing view is, is the most basic and helpful thing as I think about the relationship between uh, Christ and law. Great, great. Thank you. Um, so let me turn the corner to another question. Um, uh, Josh asks, uh, how are the early books of Genesis supposed to be read? Are they supposed to be read like a historical text or a story or something else? So um, how, what would you say to that question? Yeah, this is like the Old Testament question. Um, so for me, I think it is helpful um, in drawing that distinction that something different happens when we enter the world of Genesis 12, where it gets like really specific and, and seems to be more rooted um, in um, detailed account. Um, but at the same time, all of, all of the first five books of the Bible um, is even at the most traditional way of thinking about it is Moses finally writing down what the people believed. So we're talking about a long period of time before it's written down of saying, this is, this is what we believe to be true, what God has revealed to us, and now we're going to write it down. And I think that's almost disorienting to think, oh, Adam didn't write this story down. Like no, no one said Adam wrote it down. And so um, here, I think if we keep those bigger pieces in mind about, I just want to keep those as primary um, to say, what, is it, what does it show us about God? If we keep these bigger questions in mind, I think that's more about what the text is trying to do rather than say, this was Moses's eyewitness account or something. Um, so I think it's entirely true in what it's saying. And I also don't think there's any reason not to see that it, that there is historical Adam and Eve. So there, or the historical flood I've said with ancient or Eastern accounts, we actually get lots of corroborating evidence that there was a flood in the ancient Near East, at least um, that multiple nations experienced. And so there, I think it's a question more of reframing of saying, what's the intention of these texts is to teach us about God. And at the same time, I have no reason to, to bring my historical questions and doubt them. Um, so it's just a little bit about reorienting where I think that's kind of where we experience that world of um, world in front of the text as modern people with scientific questions. That's what we want to know, right? That's 
we want to know exactly how the world came into being. And I know that was a whole nother session. I'm no scientist, so I'm thankful it wasn't me. Um, but with that, we ask questions about how the world came into being. Whereas I think Genesis is trying to tell us more about why it came into being. And it's clearly rooting that in saying it definitely came about because of God's intention. Um, so I think it's, yeah, switching from the how to the why. Um, a lot of times is, is about that. Your question could be exactly true. I don't know. I wasn't there. Moses wasn't there. So I, I think it's just left open-ended on the how. Um, so I think there's this spectrum of things that could could be correct, um, that you could be more literal or less literal in each of those questions. Um, but at the same time, I think I don't want to lose the those why foundational questions it's definitely trying to answer. I don't know if that is that kind of what you're getting at, Josh? I I think, yeah, I think that you uh you hit on it really well. So um uh, let me move to a question that is probably something that's on everybody's mind, at least at some point when you're reading the Old Testament. And that uh, came from Adrian. How do we answer the people who question the brutality of the punishments for breaking many of the laws in the Old Testament? Uh, you know, yeah. that people have to be killed uh, for, for breaking certain things. Um, how, do we, how do we think about that? How do we talk to people about that? Yeah, um, here's another example of um, both if we'll read um, more widely within the context of the Bible. So when we hear about kind of um, contextually within several chapters, what's going on and why is God giving these punishments or why does God say this is the punishment um, to see what had happened in that context. A lot of times you've got a narrative, a narrative context that helps explain um, part of what's behind it, God doesn't just say, I don't like the Canaanites, forget it, right? He gives a justification of saying, this was my land to begin with. The Canaanites have not acted rightly um, toward other people. And so I'm going to take the land that belongs to me and give it to the Israelites. Um, so that doesn't make it clean and easy to deal with. There's still lots of ethical questions, but trying to see what is its own justification in the text. Um, and then a lot of times we can trace. Um, Comparing with other ancient Near Eastern law codes um, and even just reading the justification in the text itself, that a lot of those punishments are used to mitigate further violence. Um, so an eye for an eye is actually like less than what would be normal. So normally it would be if you poke out my eye, I'm going to like tear off your arm. And so is this kind of cycle of violence. Um, even the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we see this cycle of corruption and violence in humanity. And the flood is, is seen to be God trying to, to interrupt that cycle and say, we're going to start again. We're, and so trying to see the intentionality behind it and compare it um, with, uh, with other law codes, we see um, the heart of God to, to mitigate violence um, and to protect those who are vulnerable. Um, a lot of the laws... Um, in Israel protect people who typically weren't protected in those ancient societies. So um, we hear a lot about the sojourner or the immigrant. Um, we hear a lot about women um, and a little bit about children. We hear more. Um, one of the things about children is that God talks about he does not delight in child sacrifice as much as no one wants to talk about that. That was a reality in the ancient world that we have archaeological evidence for. And so God is really clear um, against practices like that in the text. Um, I don't know. So 
lots of things to be said about the Old Testament and, <laughs> and violence. This um, is true. Yeah, let me ask you a question, really. Um, do you feel like the Bible, the Old Testament, was intended to be read devotionally? Um, what do you think about devotional reading of through the Old Testament? Yeah. Um, personally, I find um, those kind of bits that get left out a lot to be the most um, devotional reading. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Because so when we talk about wisdom texts or poetry texts, I think it is helpful devotionally because it's typically as much as it's it's relaying God's truth. It's from the pers- more the human perspective of expressing to God. So it's not like top down. God says this, the prophet relays it, and then the people hear it. It's saying this is how the ancient Israelites talked to God, and so in, in that way, it models for us um, how honest we can be with God, um, how people doubted and could still go to God. Um, so there are definitely parts like that that are that are almost instantly accessible um, as devotional texts, um, if we'll allow it to be a little bit culturally distanced, right? Um, but at the same time, I think if we, if we do the deep work of saying, okay, I want to understand this story, that what we come away with is seeing more about God's heart for a relationship um, in the midst of this story and God's consistency. And man, when you like read through the story, you're just like, why does God not give up on these people? Like yeah. they are just yeah. failing over and over again. They are um, the worst. Yeah, yeah. And then you're like, I'm the worst, right? Like yeah. I'm really not any better. And so um, in that same sense, um, I think it, it, it's a comfort to us to be like, I can, I am a sinful person just like the Israelites and God is like so faithful and like keeps coming back. Um, and just the, the hope that God promised when we hear those texts pronounced to those people and they never met Jesus to say like, I know that God fulfilled that hope to come for the, for those people. What he told them is true. Um, so in that way, maybe it's a few more steps Um, But I think there's that like deep seated um, trust that you can build in doing the work to go back to like the beginning of the story. I mean, for Jesus, like there's no new Testament, like his Bible is the old Testament. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so that's the, one of the things I like love to tell my students when it's like all scriptures, God breathed and Timothy, it's like when Timothy wrote that he was talking about the old Testament and obviously we believe it's the new Testament too. Um, But I think just just seeing how much Jesus needed the Bible, right? Like Jesus, it lives and breathes, especially Isaiah um, in his walk um, with the Father and cries out Psalms on the cross um, that that I just think, why would we not need it? Um, Yeah. All right. Well, we have time for the one last question, um, and that is... um, uh, this is specifically about the Sabbath. So um, you mentioned that you really uh, love to think about, talk about the Sabbath. And someone asked, given that the commandment to observe the Sabbath was established at creation, and you mentioned it was really based on the creation account, um, and therefore even preceded the law, why don't we observe it today as Christians? All right. So that was the question. Yeah. Um, well, I think we should. Um, so the, the original Sabbath is, is Saturday, um, Shabbat, and um, it, 
the Jewish calendar is lunar. So from Friday evening at sundown until Saturday evening at sundown is, is supposed to be set aside for worship and for rest. I'm now recalling a like <laughs> vacation mm-hmm. Bible school Ten Commandments song in my head. Um, but uh, with that, I think there's so many like theological aspects that we take from that where I think we would do well to be more rigid about observing a Sabbath to say, mm-hmm. I can actually, I need to set aside time weekly where I stop um, work. Um, but, but also the like theological truths we take out of that of like, if I stop, the world will not fall apart. Like mm-hmm. I, I have to trust God that what it needs to be accomplished in his world that he has ordained for me to do can be done in six days. And so a lot of that is kind of pushing back culturally of saying, I don't have to be a workaholic and run myself into the ground in order to please God or be a good steward of my time. And so we kind of have to say, what's what, it, what culturally am I, am I fighting back against? And that's the same thing with the Exodus, as much as it might feel really like foreign to us, that Pharaoh would say, you're slaves and you work seven days a week and there's no rest, that God says, no, you get a day to rest. So not that we have to, um, but to go back and be like, this was a gift to the Israelites. Um, and so how can we like reorient to, to see it as gift? And I think a lot of times with discipline, that that's what happens is we see like, it's really hard to begin. And then at the end, we're like, man, this is like such a blessing. This, this spiritual practice or um, this thing that God has asked me to do that felt so hard is actually to, to, for my good and to bless me. Um, So in my own life, um, I like Brueggemann's thought about Sabbath as resistance. um, And I find that helpful. Um, But practically uh, my husband is a pastor and I work on Monday morning. And so Sunday is like wrecks me. Like when I had two, I still have two young kids, but when I had like babies, I lived in Cambridge and I cycled two miles to church and two miles back. Mm. And we were like in town all day. And that was like the least stressful day of the week while I talked to like a hundred church members who like wanted to chat to me while I need to feed my baby. So from, from that season of life, I just said, when my husband's a pastor, from Friday night to Saturday is our, is our Sabbath. Um, so we try to not run errands. We try to just rest and not do PBA work. He tries to have his sermon already written. Um, and and I kind of like the rhythm of sundown, like I work really hard on Friday and then I come home and Friday night is date night. I try to spend some more time just like reading and being in the word. So I, I take the Christian worship part on Saturday for sure. Uh, on Sunday for sure. So when Jesus rises again on Sunday, we, we mm-hmm. switch and say, let's worship on Sunday. That's perfectly fine. Um, but, but for me, I'm able to be, to be more intentional on Saturday. So it might just be in your rhythm of life that, that you have a different day that you set aside for those things. So when I say rigid, I don't mean there's these hard and fast rules and this is exactly how you should do it. But I think we need to be intentional, um, and dedicate time, um, to God and in that sense of admitting our own humanity of like, I, I like my body needs rest and God created my body to need rest every night and even once a week. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this was great. And I, you know, I hear you saying that, um, you know, the, these things maybe aren't laws in the same sense for us as they were for the Israelites in the old Testament, but they're, 
really great principles that we can still learn from and benefit from. So, um, so thank you so much. Thanks for actually answering Kathy. (laughs) Um, No, no, that was awesome. What you said. And uh, I, I would just love Brittany uh, before we um, close out to have maybe Trevor, you could just pray a blessing over Dr. Melton's um, work and just over our congregation as we all seek to, to understand God's word um, better and, and live it out. So Amen. I want you to close us off in prayer. Sounds great. Awesome. Let's pray, everybody. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you are the Father of our Lord Jesus. Uh, you are one God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You are the God of the first covenant with Israel, and you are the God of the new covenant in Christ. Thank you so very much. Lord, would you pour out um, abundant blessings upon Dr. Melton, upon her family, upon her children, upon her teaching ministry and her calling uh, as she teaches at Palm Beach Atlantic University. And uh, Lord, that you would use her mightily to train up people in your ways and in your word and for uh, to serve you in this world. Uh, Lord, you give her peace this night. Would you give her assurance of the ways that she has blessed our community? And Lord, would you let her feel a sense of gratitude as well for we're grateful for her. Uh, Lord, thank you for her teaching. Would you cause it to grow us into more fully devoted followers of you? And I love what she said uh, in our Q&A about how the Old Testament, Lord Jesus, was your Bible. Lord, teach us to love the Old Testament the way that you loved it too. Thank you, Lord, for her teaching and for a great night. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So let's give a hand to Dr. Melton and thank you so much. Thank you. Good night, everybody. It was good to hang out again. Yep. Good to see everybody. God bless you. Thank you, Dr. Melton. Bye. Bye. Thank you.